Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Karl Marx's The 18th Premiere of Louis Napoleon Reading Group Series. Today is Thursday the 22nd of October 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we begin Chapter 5, The National Assembly versus Bonaparte. Let's hit it. So this chapter here is titled on Marxist.org, they call it National Assembly versus Bonaparte. So this is going to talk about how Bonaparte basically split up the, the party of order, took control and basically dominated the, the parliament from his presidential palace. And we're going to kind of follow how he uses a kind of a secret organization of his own called the Society of December the 10th or the Decemberists and how he uses them to basically cause a bit of havoc politically around the place and throw some shapes. Okay, so once the parliament voted to get rid of the universal suffrage, Bonaparte basically came to them and said, hey, that's not fair now. You got rid of a load of my votes. I want like one franc for every every person whose vote is lost. And instead of giving them like six million francs or whatever that he looked for, they gave him like two million. And he subsequently used them to basically go out and do some political bribes and stuff all over the place and, and throw some money about. Let's just jump in from a little bit down here. Okay, got it. We shall see later for what purpose Bonaparte needed the money. After this vexatious aftermath, which followed on the heels of the abolition of universal suffrage, and in which Bonaparte exchanged his humble attitude during the crisis of March and April for challenging imprudence to the usurpatory parliament, the National Assembly adjourned for three months from August 11th to November 11th. In its place, it left behind a permanent commission of 28 members, which contained no Bonapartists, but did contain some moderate Republicans. The permanent commission of 1849 had included only ordermen and Bonapartists, but at that time, the party of order declared itself permanently against the revolution. This time, the Parliamentary Republic declared itself permanently against the president. After the law of May 31, this was the only rival that still confronted the party of order. When the National Assembly met once more in November 1850, it seemed that instead of the petty skirmishes it had hitherto had with the president, a great and ruthless struggle, a life and death struggle between the two powers had become inevitable. This is setting the stage here for basically we're going to have Bonaparte and the Party of Order going at it through the Parliament. Let's keep going and have a look at this the Society of December the 10th. This society dates from the year 1849. On the pretext of founding a benevolent society, the lumpen proletariat of Paris had been organized into secret sections. Each section led by Bonapartist agents with a Bonapartist general at the head of the whole. Alongside Decay Rouet with dubious means of subsistence and of dubious origin, alongside ruined and adventurous offshoots of the bourgeoisie, were vagabonds, discharged soldiers, discharged jailbirds, escaped galley slaves, swindlers, mountebanks, lazaroni, pickpockets, tricksters, gamblers, macaro, uh, brothel keepers, porters, literati, organ grinders, rag pickers, knife grinders, tinkers, beggars. In short, the whole indefinite disintegrated mass thrown hither and thither, which the French call la bohème, 
From this kindred element, Bonaparte formed the, the core of the Society of December 10th, a benevolent society insofar as, like Bonaparte, all its members felt the need of benefiting themselves at the expense of the laboring nation. This Bonaparte, who constitutes himself chief of the lumpen proletariat, who here alone rediscovers in mass form the interests which he personally pursues, who recognizes in this scum, awful refuse of all classes, the only class upon which he can base himself unconditionally, is the real Bonaparte, the Bonaparte sans flas, an old crafty roué. He conceives the historical life of the nations and their performances of states of state as comedy in the most vulgar sense, as a masquerade in which the grand costumes, words, and postures merely serve to mask the pettiest knavery. Thus, his expedition to Strasbourg, where the trained Swiss vulture played the part of the Napoleonic eagle. For his eruption into Boulogne, he put some London lackeys into French uniforms. They represent the army. In his, December, or in his society of December 10, he assembles 10,000 rascals who are to play the part of the people as Nick Bottom, uh, the character from Midsummer Night's Dream, that of the lion. At a moment when the bourgeoisie itself played the most complete comedy, but in the most serious manner in the world, without infringing any of the pedantic conditions of the French dramatic etiquette, and was itself half deceived, half convinced of the solemnity of its own performance of state, the adventurer, who took the comedy as plain comedy, was bound to win. Only when he has eliminated his solemn opponent, when he himself now takes his imperial role seriously, and under the Napoleonic mask imagines he is the real Napoleon, does he become the victim of his own conception of the world. The serious buffoon who no longer takes world history for comedy, but his comedy for world history. What the national ateliers were for the socialist workers, what the garde mobile were for the bourgeois republicans, the society of December 10th was for Bonaparte, the party fighting force peculiar to him. On his journeys, the detachments of this society packing the railways had to improvise a public for him, stage popular enthusiasm, roar vive l'empereur, insult and trash Republicans under police protection, of course. On his return journeys to Paris, they had to form the advance guard, forestall counter demonstrations or disperse them. The society of December the 10th belonged to him. It was his work, his very own idea. Whatever else he appropriates is put into his hands by the force of circumstances. Whatever else he does, the circumstances do for him, or he is content to copy from the deeds of others. But Bonaparte, with official phrases about order, religion, family, and property in public, before the citizens and with the secret society of Schufterlis and Spielbergs, the society of disorder, prostitution, and theft behind him, that is Bonaparte himself as the original author, and the history of the Society of December 10th is his own history. Just a note of order, the Schufterles and the Spielbergs were from Schiller's drama called The Robbers, who pillaged and murdered without impediment or scruples. Okay, the Society of the December 10th. What are we going to say about them, looking at today's politics? Could we see, like elements of of the society of december 10th in like tea party and and these type of no you can uh, see astroturfed or 
Sort of, but no. I don't think so. Like, honestly, because these aren't petite bourgeois. These are these are people who are desperate, and their desperation makes them reliant on the state. And ever since Mao did his brainwashing campaigns upon the quote-unquote neutral classes in China, it has been assumed that the lumpen proletariat, which is the desperate and the dispossessed, would be the org- would be the organ of at least or at least an ally in the revolution. And so, frankly, whenever we see mass movements on the left lately, it's been of students plus these kinds of people, people who you would call declasse. Marx has very little time for this. And this is why. It is not, it, he's not talking about petite bourgeois here. He's talking about people who, whose primary things are criminal enterprise, grifting, and having nothing to do outside of the army. He, he's talking about, like, massively structurally sustained unemployed who have picked up other things to survive. And those other things are all, are all parasitic. So you're saying that the things like the tea party and, and such kind of astroturfed organizations tend to be more petty bourgeois than what Marx is saying. You you see people like this who turn into sort of managers of organizations like tea party, like the astroturfers, but the membership is petty bourgeois. Yeah, I would agree with that. The membership is like small businesses. It's not like you're not turning to the mafia or to street gangs to form the society. And to be fair, I mean, leftists have largely, they don't do this formally anymore, but in the 70s, it was a real thing. And, and in the late 60s, where that was seen as the part of society where you needed to recruit from. And the other people historically who thought you needed to recruit from there were insurrectionary anarchists. So... You know, I'm I'm not so much sure like how much of this is obviously we believe that, that, that Marx is telling the truth here, but how much of this is also a polemic against like Prodonist and and stuff at the time as well, because of the context for this writing. But look at where these dispossessed classes go when they have a rich patron. You can get them up to anything. And they will do so off of the backs of the majority of society, which you know, according to Marx is a working class and the peasantry. So, yeah. And, and yes, you, you might see grifters like this, like high-end grifters like this, who are astroturfing things. I would agree. But that's actually bourgeois and petty bourgeois. They have the money. Like, you know, you don't ask you know, low, low-level car artists to go run your, um, run your grifting organization. What's interesting about fascism, and I think Trotsky talks about this a little bit, Fascism that made it different from classical Bonapartism, and this was a debate between the right oppositionists and the left oppositionists in the 20s and 30s, was that Trotsky thought that fascism was kind of a Bonapartism with, that also managed to incorporate the petty bourgeoisie, and thus was like, in Trotsky's analysis, a ball on the top of a pyramid, and he thus thought the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was fine because the class composition of of the base of Nazism was so incoherent that it would just fall apart. And I mean, he may have been right about that, but not before you know it killed you know twelve million people or more. So yeah, I mean, but I don't think I don't actually think like you, you don't see this in the United States. Occasionally, you might see this in like places where there's a lot of imperial jackfuckery, like, you know, places we traditionally call like banana republics where like Codillo figures will like basically recruit the mob to hold up their government. 
And but that only tends to happen now in places where there's a really strong, like hidden, you know, neo-colonial or imperial bootprint from either Europe or the United States and Canada to tip things around. And so I don't think there's a one-to-one correlation of stuff in America on this. So, so another thing would be like for us to discuss here would be what about the role of secret societies? We we see them. I don't know. I've been going through like a lot of the you know revolutions podcast. Certainly in 1848, there, especially in Italy and some of these places, there was shitloads of highly organized secret societies. We don't really see this phenomenon around too much today. Certainly not from the left. Is there a role for these secret societies from our just, point of view? Sorry, just a question about are you? I wouldn't think like not all secret societies are the same. Like I'm not. I don't. I don't know that you're trying to. Are you trying to equate the Society of December the tenth with like a highly organized like anarchist cell? Like they're both secret societies. Like yeah, no, no. More like I'm thinking not like I'm not thinking about anarchist cells. You're thinking about like the you're thinking about the carbonari right in in Italy. That also led to like the secret dictatorship doctrines of Bakunin. Marx, the reason why you don't see it is both liberals and Marxists have jointly kind of opposed this. Like Marx has always op- like opposed that. He he let them into the international but argued against them, and that's what ultimately killed the first international. Was the debate over the state and Marx's compromise position, and the debate over the role of revolutionary secret societies and secret vanguards which Marx opposed as being dictatorial and anti-democratic. Which is a fair point. What about in, no, absolutely. But what about in situations, say, like where you, where it's like severely repressive and you have to go underground? You know, say, for example, like in Northern Ireland, where the IRA was, you know, obviously an underground yeah. secret society. Are, are like, the Bolsheviks, uh, like, frankly, like the Bolsheviks were... Uh, exactly. There yeah. was a lot. There was a lot of this in Latin America as a result to the of the turn to the right in the mid century, right? Yeah, I, it's actually something I, I I wonder about because I had a debate with an unnamed Marxist group that called itself anti vanguardist that had very very strict secret rules, even of like like its membership internally, and I quoted the Communist Manifesto at them <laughs> in the first international debates, but. You know, they had points back to me about the, even though they were anti-Bolshevik, but about the Bolsheviks and the, they brought up the IRA and for oppressive conditions and like the secret, the uh, illegal and secret um, labor unions. I suppose the goal is, do they stay secret? Are you secret as a tacit tactical thing under severe repression? Are you secret because you want to operate secretly in general? And that's a very different, those are very different things. Like if, you know, like the Bolsheviks, you know, we, we I know that most of us are not tr- tried and true Leninists here, including me, but the Bolsheviks didn't keep their roster secret once they were not under state repression anymore. Right. Generally the case of the groups we've been discussing. Uh, Mog, are you old enough to remember when they used to allow Jerry Adams on the television, but they used to get a voiceover guy to record his voice? They used to do in, in BBC for a while, like it was illegal to have a Jerry Adams on the speaking on the telly or Martin McGuinness. What they used to do is they would, they after a while they said, well, he can be on the telly, but he, you can't use his voice. So they used to get like a voice actor 
to voice over it with like a really bad Northern Irish accent. It was very funny, man. You couldn't fucking make it up. Um, wow. I mean, there is, there. Um, I will say uh, one of the things that we have to deal with that has been brought up in chat, but it's serious because I've taught about it, is like, you know, one of the reasons why I think Black Lives Matter went into official like quasi-NGO territory and outside of its initial like organizing is all the Ferguson people were dead within what, two years? Like all the mm -hmm. leaders. Yeah. Like they were, they were kind of strategically outed. And so it, it made sense that you would go into like official NGO and cause you're, you're less dangerous, but you're also way more protected. It's hard to say what, you know, how the secret societies would work. But I, again, like, like, I think the argument is that, that like the reason why the Bonapartists were doing this were not, was not from political profession. It was because like, they didn't want you to know what you were doing. And they didn't want to know who was doing it. I mean, it, it's a secret society in the way that, like, conspiracy theorists would accuse the U.S. government of, like, of having the CIA cooperate with the mob to kill JFK. Like, it's like that. Right. That's quite a mainstream American opinion, though, isn't it? Is that not, like, probably the majority of Americans think something like that is true? The, 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 uh, the majority of Americans believe in some in some sort of JFK conspiracy, including myself until I was, you know, a little older. I kind of actually still believe in one, but it's it's one of incompetence. <laughs> we can talk about that another day. My theory is in actually responding to the shot that the Secret Service accidentally shot him in the head. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, uh, I like that one. I like that one, Derek. That's like, like that actually <laughs> to me that explains the most. But it, it's it, this is eerie though to me because one of the things I think Marx is doing here is I think Marx is actually having a backdoor argument with other leftists with this section because the debates in the first international like resolve around so many of these classes that he's accusing Napoleon of using that I'm thinking like, you know, even though this is before that, that this was, uh, he was worried about this from like moment one from like discussions in the league of the just and the communist league, that he was worried about the left trying to use these elements themselves and to align with, with someone like Bismarck, which he, you know, was turned out to be true to kind of take power and how bad that would go. There was a comment in chat that uh, the CIA used the mafia to control Italy. I should also add that the current ruling party in Japan, the long-time ruling party, the LDP, was partially formed out of the uh, out of Japanese organized crime. It was a sort of coalition that was set up by the Americans between organized criminals and uh, sort of rump conservatives that were left over from the pre-war period. Yeah, it was a kind of a standard practice in, in that imperial way that uh, I think you were describing, Derek. Yeah, I mean, I, I was also thinking of, of the pre's in Mexico as the pre-moved, drifted whiteward over time from its socialist origins, the party revolution, the institution out. It also did that thing where it would kind of cut deals with cartel leaders and stuff like that. And like cartel leaders from Pablo Escobar on have have done a good job of doing the Robin Hood thing. And, and I'm sure, you know, because American intelligence money is always everywhere. <laughs> like, like it's one of those things where it, I never think of the CIA as particularly competent. But when you when you do like, oh, this person's backed by the CIA, you're like, well, that's because the CIA seems to give money to everybody. 
Like they're always trying to buy influence and intelligence all the time from all sides. I would be interested to know the meta context for this though. Like what specific debates that Marx is referring to out that he's not mentioning directly in this, like, you know, in this kind of postmortem that he's doing here. Cause you always have to remember like Marx's public writings are polemics and they're often polemics aimed at other leftists. And so like, some of these things have implications of debates that we often can't remember and don't know. Fair enough. Uh, I'm going to give a go at the next little section here. I'll give it a read. Now it had happened by way of exception that people's representatives belonging to the party of order came under the cudgels of the Decembrists. Still more, Jan, the police commissioner assigned to the National Assembly and charged with watching over its safety, acting on the deposition of a certain Allais, advised the permanent commission that a section of the Decembrists had decided to assassinate General Changarnier and Dupin, the president of the National Assembly, and had already designated the individuals who were to perpetrate the deed. One comprehends the terror of Monsieur Dupin, a parliamentary inquiry into the society of December the 10th, that is, the profanation of the Bonapartist secret world, seemed inevitable. Just before the meeting of the National Assembly, Bonaparte providently disbanded his society, naturally only on paper, for in a detailed memoir at the end of 1851, police prefect Carlier still sought in vain to move him to really break up the Decembrists. The society of December the 10th was to remain the private army of Bonaparte until he succeeded in transforming the public army into a society of December the 10th. Bonaparte made the first attempt at this shortly after the adjournment of the National Assembly, and precisely with the money just wrested from it. As a fatalist, he lived in the conviction that there are certain higher powers which man, and the soldier in particular, cannot withstand. Among these powers, he counts first and foremost cigars and champagne, cold poultry and garlic sausage. Accordingly, to begin with, he treats officers and non-commissioned officers in his Elysee apartments to cigars and champagne, cold poultry and garlic sausage. <laughs> On October 3rd, he repeats this manoeuvre with the mass of the troops at the Saint-Marc Review. And on October the 10th, the same manoeuvre on a still larger scale at the Satori Army Parade. The uncle remembered the campaigns of Alexander in Asia, the nephew the triumphal marches of Bacchus in the same land. Alexander was a demigod to be sure, but Bacchus was a god, and moreover, the tutelary deity of the society of December the 10th. Bacchus is also my personal deity, but that's just, you know. <laughs> we, we know you follow the Roman traditions. <laughs> like, cold poultry doesn't seem that good a, a bribe nowadays, does it? Like, here's some cold chicken, lads. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever have you ever watched Survivor, Tom? You know when they, when they get that 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 congratulatory victory food, it's always cold, like cold spaghetti, cold meat. You know what? You know if I'm right about the stock market, we might all be liking cold chicken pretty well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I'm actually laughing at all the food references because I'm reading War Minister Hotpool. Hotpool. How do you say that? And I read it. I read it as hot pot. General hot pot. General hot pot and the cold poultry. Yeah. 
Yeah. What do you guys? You know, I. You know, what's interesting to me about this is like that that you don't see as much of this in in like the fully developed bourgeois states, but you definitely see it on like the periphery of bourgeois states, and that I guess that kind of makes sense. Like comparing France to England, you know, because England probably was wouldn't have done this in the same way. They didn't get up to these shenanigans. What do you What do you guys make of that? Like. What do you make of that in its developmental context? Because I really do have a hard time of like imagining the executive personally using them, although maybe not. I mean, we are talking about Trump times, but like in the height of American power, imagining the executive, the president alone without party apparatus or CIA or the OSS or anything directly using the mob you know, under the auspices of charity to get stuff done. But I definitely have seen that stuff in developing countries. Yeah, I mean, in India, there's been, I think, more suggestion than reality, but definitely this strong connection between Modi and sort of far-right Hindu mobs. But I don't know if it's that, I, I'm, I'm really, I don't think in that case it's as direct. Yeah, but the, I mean, but he, the thing is with Modi that you have a political tradition that he's coming out of with the with the Hindu Vadas that, is kind of explicit, even if he's not doing it himself. Right. Yeah. But it, but it has a similar kind of like anti-political structure to the kind of thing Bonaparte's pulling. So are we viewing anti-politics as when like, when we let the lumpen go wild? Is that what it is? Like is anti-politics lumpen go crazy time? <laughs> I, not, not, I, I don't know if I'd be like, but I guess there are definitely elements of that here, right? Like so in the previous, in a few passages ago, when he was taught, when uh, Marx was talking about Bonaparte as transitioning from treating world history as you know as comedy to putting his own comedy onto world history, like that sounded like a very kind of like you know lumpen as degeneration of anti-politics kind of analysis. Yeah, I don't think uh, the lumpen running amok is exhaustive of what anti-politics would mean. Clearly, when like if you look at like American developmental periods at the same time not the same time, the same developmental periods, like the end of industrialization in the U.S., you clearly did have, like, local and even federal governments hiring the mob and Pinkertons and who, whatever mercenaries they could from ever, from whatever campaign, like, ex-Union and Confederate soldiers to go in and just mow people down. I mean, and it's even, like, preserved in our pop culture. Like, if you go watch Westerns, that's, like, the implications of a lot of that stuff is, you yeah. know, we moved out West to get away from the fucking Pinkertons who like mowed down our mining town and now they're now these werewolf barons are coming for our lands and we got to go fight them a la Shane and like yeah so you I mean you see that in the United States and that happens actually after I mean it would be after France and that would make sense right like you'll get your three oldest bourgeois republics like we're the third well we're, we're technically older than France but we were not as developed so we're the third and, you know, we go through the period slightly later and you definitely like, if, God, read all the crazy shit that politicians were up to in the States from like 1850 to like 1930. It's, it's pretty wild. It seems to me like, is it a, is it a function of like the state not being fully formed? You yeah. Know, that, that, that he can do it. But also it's like, if you think about it, like, you know, his uncle was the goddamn emperor. And he probably had untold amounts of money to just like throw around. And well, he, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he, no. if he, if he saw that. 
No, no. One of the funny things is Marx points out he got the money from his ridiculously absorbent salary. Like, yeah, six hundred thousand francs in seventeen hundreds money is insane. Like, I I know that, but president that now in the United States, like, (laughs) uh, (laughs) like you know, I remember when the president, I think in in the Clinton years, the president think got paid two hundred two hundred fifty k, and I think Mao took like six. 6,000K a year or something, but it's not, it's actually remarkably not high. And I think part of the reason why is that, like you don't want them using their salary for that. But yeah, I mean, he probably got up to all kinds of shit, but he's also like, he's more of a disgrace. I mean, he's from a disgrace lineage. He's trying to like make good. I mean, the most dangerous aristocrats are the ones that kind of barely are, you know, like, like you look at who makes up conquistadors, you look at all this like end of feudal era shit. Like, those people are dangerous because they're desperate. This week, I have the new patrons, Chase Preacher and Ben, to thank. If you like the show, perhaps you could become a patron. For $5 a month, you get two new episodes and live streams every month, access to the Emancipation Network Discord, and the right to vote on the next reading group series. And for the rest of the month of October, all new patrons will get that most exclusive of item, the From Alpha to Omega Commie Badge. Okay, let's rejoin the discussion. Things change. Life always change in the air. But the change is different from that ever felt before. The music is listening. But, you know, I'm also trying to be a good Marxist and look at the, like, economic development. It's not just that the state's weak. It's that you still have, like, all these – you have a lot more auxiliary classes in these early stages of bourgeois development. And, like, one of the funny things is, you know, you were reading that list of people that are in the, in that coalition. And you, you like a knife grinder. What's wrong with being a knife grinder? Well, when I was in Egypt, like – in 2015, 2016, 2017, there were knife grinders everywhere. They were beggars. And apparently they were used, like a lot of the locals would accuse them of like being spies for the government because they were cheap. You meet this knife grinder and this kid and like they're standing in the road. Everybody just kind of ignores them. And, you know, it's not it's not hard to to pay them off a little bit and, you know, and also, you know, I, I don't want to lit them in the stereotypes, but it is a society that to survive, people actually kind of have to pay bribes because official salaries are so low, you can't survive off them. So, I mean, I'm, I also think that's probably true in France at the time, like, given that how many republics have we gone through by this point? Like, it's the fourth. It's, yeah. That normally doesn't breed a stable currency, for example. So... <laughs> I'm 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 not surprised, but I, I I would actually have to do like an economic history of France in the in the 17th and 18th century to speak more authoritatively I, on this. I, I I think as well, like if you like you know just re doing a capital reading group, you know, and you're going through all the madness that's going on in the 1800s in England, where you know suddenly like the sewing machine comes in, bang, everybody doing their handicrafts at home are all screwed, and I can imagine the same kind of creation of a mass unemployed base is happening at the same time in France, not to the same extent. It will happen under Bonaparte, but it really hasn't kicked off yet in France uh, at this point. 
I mean, this, um, is, this is the puzzle, right? Like so many people talk about uh, French industrialization is much, much slower than British industrialization, German industrialization. Yeah, it, it, it's something that only begins in the Second Empire, really. Was the German one not also slower? No, the German was fast, because, but the, the reason for that it is properly given by materialists, liberal historians, is that Germany didn't have enough of an empire to do shit with and so had to be more efficient to compete. So that efficiency against competing with European empires led it to like basically be like the engineer state and the state of poets and philosophers and to like really invest in its education system. Like the modern education system that all the world uses. I mean, and France was still using this education system until the fucking 60s. It was basically a medieval clerical you know, universities and schooling systems. And like the Prussians were like, nah, man, we got to modernize this shit. And that's what the German and American school systems are founded on. And the UK is too, to some degree, actually. The, those reforms, the grade levels, the end of the one-one schoolhouse, um, the testing regimes, those all come out of, Pru- of like Prussian efficiency moves, try to outcompete the British. Well, I'm telling you, I did a maths degree in the 90s in Ireland and it was like fucking Jesuits. They used to get us to learn theorem and proof off by heart. So you would have maybe in a course, you might have 80 theorems and proofs. And what you, your, your exam would literally be going and just like state this theorem, prove it. And you'd have to know about 80 theorems. And it's just like, you wouldn't, they never asked you to do, to do any math. It was just like rote learning. Fucking incredible. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I mean, one of the things that I, I, uh, Amog might remember this. Amog asked me to talk about the forms of education worldwide. God, this was like six years ago. We this did, was the very first thing, thing we did, I think. Yeah, this massive six-hour podcast, like we going through <laughs> the entire history of Western education, which is something I actually know probably better than this stuff. And one of the things I pointed out is like Latin America is kind of weird because it's still kind of based on that medieval model of education systems. Because it's, of Catholic influence and all that. It's also re- the reason why you see like the people in the Vienna circle and that grouping be so radical is because they were incredibly frustrated with the Catholic system that was still in place and how conservative and, and, and out, out of date it was. To me, that's just an epiphenomena of like Germans not having an empire. So they had to industrialize really fast. But kind of like China and Russia did, they also had the advantage of the English-speaking world and its colonies having already done so. So all they had to do was improve and advance. Again, liberal materialists more than Marx and study this. But if you look at like these societies, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit at first. And then this new society comes on and they just steal all the innovations of the prior society. Like the United States did it to Britain and China's doing it to everybody. And they improve on it. Immediately, because the research R&D that they have can be invested on advancement more than coming up with it in the first place. And so, like, it, it makes sense to me that, like, that Germany was able to do it so much faster. The UK kind of pioneered it, but it had all those imperial resources to really propel it. But France was, you know, kind of a cluster mess. I mean, really, it's strange to think of because of the Napoleonic army. But if you look at it economically, it was kind of a developing country compared to compared to England at the time. It just had all those numbers, didn't it? It had a very big population. It had like double the British population, I think, at the time, didn't it? 
Yeah. I mean, and also... Triple. Actually, triple. It was 30 million or something crazy. Right. But also, if you think about that, when you have that much labor power, you can be inefficient as fuck. Yeah. (laughs) What do you call it? There was a guy in my my maths course, and his name was Anto, and he was a real big, tough guy. He was the captain of the Gaelic football team in in Trinity, and he he was a total tank of a guy. But he used to go to no lectures... And he would just like, he would get notes from people, but he had an amazing memory. So he would just learn all this stuff off by heart. And he had no understanding what any of the symbols or anything meant. And in one of his courses, he had, he had lost one of the pap- one of the pages in this big, long proof with these seminal, like complex analysis proofs. It was like six foods cap kind of a proof. And he missed out two of them. And he basically wrote out the proof perfectly. but He, he had memorized it without this one sheet. So none of it made any sense. And uh, they copped on what he was doing and they failed him for the entire year. But how could you possibly just learn all the symbols with no meaning? Fucking hell, man. I mean, just to, just to give some context, like in 1831, like half the labor force is in agriculture. What, what would it be a mog at the time in, in the UK? Would it be uh, something similar? I think it's le- definitely less. I think this is a, yeah. uh, 23%. I think that the figure I was looking at is 23% of the population in the uk compared to like 50 in france so it's, it's yeah i'm actually like a lot of the a few sweden and a number of other countries like this is this is a this is a general pattern like france is but france is an outlier because it has this massive population and it's you know all kinds of other things but it's like as yeah. Yeah, derek was saying it's a developing country in that it had respect. it had a lot of garlic sausage um <laughs> Amog, how do you feel about reading this next chapter okay after the review of October the 3rd, the Permanent Commission summoned War Minister Otpol. Uh, he promised that these breaches of discipline would not recur. We know how on October the 10th, Bonaparte kept Otpol's word. As Commander-in-Chief of the Paris Army, Shanganier had commanded at both reviews, at once a member of the Permanent Commission, Chief of the National Guard, that, quote, saviour, unquote, of January 29th and June 13th, the bulwark of society, the candidate of the party of order for presidential honors, the suspected monk of two monarchies. He had hitherto never acknowledged himself as the subordinate of the war minister, had openly derided, had always openly derided the Republican constitution and had pursued Bonaparte with an ambiguous lordly protection. Now he was consumed with zeal for discipline against the war minister and for the constitution against Bonaparte. While on October the 10th, a section of the cavalry raised the shout, Vive Napoleon, vive les saucissons, hurrah for Napoleon, hurrah for the sausages. Changanier arranged that at least the infantry marching past the command of his friend Neumeyer should preserve an icy silence. As a punishment, the war minister relieved General Neumeyer of his post in Paris at Bonaparte's instigation on the pretext of appointing him commanding general of the 14th and 15th divisions. Neumeyer refused this exchange of posts and so had to resign. Changanier, for his part, published an order of the day on November the 2nd, in which he forbade the troops to indulge in political outcries or demonstrations of any kind, while under arms. The Elysee newspapers attacked Changanier, the papers of the Party of Order attacked Bonaparte, the Permanent Commission held repeated secret sessions, in which it was repeatedly proposed to declare the country in danger. The army seemed divided into two hostile camps with two hostile general staffs, one in the Elysee, where Bonaparte resided, the other in the Tuileries, the quarters of Changanier. 
it seemed that the only only the meeting of the National Assembly was needed to give the signal for battle. The French public judged this friction between Bonaparte and Changarnier, like the English journalist who characterized it in these words. The political housemaids of France are sweeping away the glowing lava of the revolution with old brooms and wrangle with one another as they do, while they do their work. I find this paragraph a little bit eerie at the moment to what's going on in America. Yeah, we were talking about those army splits, weren't we? Except you get the sense that there's, <laughs> in it's some ways, less gridlock, but <laughs> I'll leave it to other people to judge. I, I, I think, basically, if Trump had been smarter with the military the way he had had people address him with the judiciary, because Trump took other people's orders on the judiciary and stacked it appropriately, I mean, appropriately for him and his conservative allies and uh, the American Heritage, Heritage Foundation and et cetera, I think you'd see something like that. But Trump did not learn the first rule of Cadillaism, and that is make sure the military is loyal first. And he doesn't come from their ranks. And in the United States, the military has been able to kind of, I mean, it's been used as a political football, but no one really uses generals that way. And attempts to do so after Eisenhower have largely failed. I, you know, I've, I've talked about James Burnham before, but that's one of the predictions he makes where he's utterly wrong, where he predicts that like we'd have Bonapartist tendencies with generals in the U.S. becoming presidents. That exposes the apparatus to public, to public scrutiny too much. But it is interesting how it's pretty clear that like Trump did it sound like he kind of wanted to attempt something like this, but had no idea like where to get his generals from. All he could That's really, right. All he could really do is play with the civilian oversight of the of the military, not the military itself. Yeah, he he didn't have his faction in the Pentagon, or if they existed, he didn't organize them well enough. So, I, I, yeah, I just I don't really see this uh, split military phenomenon playing out right now. There's no clear spokesperson for the Trumpist side. But what it, what I will say is he 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 overestimated the civilian apparatus of the military. So like he thought like by having blowhards like Pompeo and formally having like people like John Kelly on chief of staff, he'd have some of these people on his side. But Kelly was on the side of the military clearly. It seems nearly like it was a battle he never kind of expected to have to have. You know, that this thing just blew up in his face, and then he just went, "Oh, I'm the man in charge. I can boss people around without." knowing, like not, not even thinking about the politics of the army. Well, being a tin pot real estate man does not, does not prepare you to be a tin pot dictator, Tom. Like that's, those are different skill sets. They're different tin pots. You need to no, 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 no. They're exactly the same, Derek. Exactly the same. It seems like that he's managed to kind of put Shangarnier under the command of the war minister, where Shangarnier seemed to be kind of like an opposing kind of totem in political life yeah it's it's kind of like when macarthur was running rampant in asia and there was no one really telling him what to do and he sort of threatened to overcome the civilian apparatus that's kind of the position sean garnier was in but then he's kind of been put in on the defensive here was bonaparte i don't think uh, bonaparte had been a successful military leader beforehand right one of the things no, he, he led these these harebrained revolutionary expeditions that, that you know, he tried to seize power, and they were just catastrophic failures. 
Right. Like it, it was mentioned in one of the previous paragraphs you read where he said it landed with a load of English people. Do you remember he said that? That that's what that was about. Where he landed with some like English some French guys in England who believed him that this when he said, Oh, we can invade and we'll we'll take over. I mean it sounded like 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 one of those weird Wonka coups and you know, with like British aristocrats trying to go back and take over like Sierra Leone or something. Like <laughs> Getting their ass handed to them by the Zimbabwean police. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it was it was like that uh, weird mercenary coup attempt in Venezuela that happened recently. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or Mark Thatcher. Do you remember like uh, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Mark Thatcher in, in Guinea, New Guinea, or or not um, Guinea Bissau, I think. Here, here's the line in that one. He says, "For his for his eruption into Boulogne, he put some London lackeys in French uniforms." That's that's what he's talking about there in that previous paragraph. I mean, I could see Trump doing that, except that Trump doesn't come from. A, he doesn't think Trump does not think merit, militarily, actually, and kind of sometimes I'm grateful for it, <laughs> to be frank. Like he he kind of approaches everything as a blowhard, fake boss on TV. So yeah, every power problem is basically a media problem of one kind or another, right? He, he it's all PR, but he's it, also kind of you know boardroom scheme, boardroom scheming, you know, as opposed to thinking about like the forces of power in a society. Right, which is why I think the the our party of order hates him so much. But still, like if Trump had never been a CEO of a large production company that had to deal with established unions, he would be a different kettle of fish altogether yeah or if he came from like lockheed martin he'd be a different kettle i mean like like if you think about like it's not that for example like the bush administration was less corporate they just came out of the corporate sectors adjacent to a geopolitical conflict like halliburton i mean there's also like if you think about all of trump's like shitty deals and the way he you know it's all all of the stuff was so it's all a lot of a lot of legalistic stuff you know trying to get tenants evicted and trying to you know, it's all kind of rentier. It's none of this. It's it's certainly not industrial conflict. And it's certainly not, you know, as people were saying, it's certainly not like mobilizing a force um, of any kind. It's all kind of either media fuckery or kind of, you know, landlord fuckery. Yeah, media fuckery, IP fuckery are, um, are, are basic landlordism, which totally makes sense, right? That's what he did. I mean, he was also bad at it. Um, yeah, his success came when he actually like got into showbiz, and I guess that's the intuition he's followed. It, it's interesting to think about like what Bonapartism looks like at different stages of the economy, since we are kind of in the United States is clearly more in a rentier economy. But also, like it means that, frankly, if you take that view, it makes our Bonapartes even like even more farcical because they they can't even control the military. That's the one thing Bonapartists are supposed to do. It's not clear they can really control anything except the, the sort of media space in which, uh, you know, elections and elite discourse takes place. Yeah, and I think I think that's true for both in, in, in England as well. I think it shows that our, like, our political class, it's like they're operating purely on political logic. You know, they don't have any competency or any of these things. You see again and again here with the COVID response, both in the UK and in America, it's like they purely just have, they just operate on this day-to-day -day political 
ideas, nothing to do with competency or anything. It's kind of, it's staggering. You mean when you say political, you mean like keeping poll numbers up and that playing to the base, that kind of thing? Yeah, like a PR logic. You know, like it's like they're all being run by marketing agencies. That's how the economic deliberation takes place as well, right? Like, so the, you know, it's like in the Tory party, it's like, you know, there's rural interests who make a big scene and, you know, some Tory ministers get annoyed and that gets input into the trade deal. Or, you know, there are there are some other members of the base that make noise and the, the government has to do something to pacify them. It's all this kind of whack-a-mole media exercise, even at the level of policy. It's enough to make me kind of believe in left-com degeneration theory. I know that. It, it's like, have you seen uh, Avenue 5, the the new show with Hugh Lowry in it? No. no. So, well, he, he like plays the captain of the starship, and he's hired on because the person who is actually supposed to run the ship doesn't have any charisma. So he hires an actor to play the captain who has a- actually no abilities and captaincy except for PR. And then they get into a, a serious crisis and the, the the person who was supposed to run the ship is dead and the actor is left in charge. And that very much feels like where we are with like American and British politics right now. Does he prove to be surprisingly good in kicking the can down the road? No, it's just an ongoing disaster. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, you know, what, you know what's funny about that to me, though? This trend in American politics is not new. It's just gotten farcical. And what I mean by that is like Reagan. Reagan. Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. But Reagan. at least Reagan did have a stint in government, you know, before becoming the actor president. Like there was mm-hmm. at least a tacit, I mean, again, this is a first strategy to this farce thing. There was at least a tacit, like, I have to learn these skills. I'm going to run for governor of California. You know, I dealt, I was part of, and then against the actors union, you know, I've done political things before. Whereas in the test, in the case of Trump, Trump's sojourn in the politics has just been PR and donations until basically 2010. Really? Let's not, let's not forget his wrestling. He was very good at the wrestling. But it, it tells you how much, yeah, I mean, like the truth to the anti-political discourse, but the the thing, you know, that my complaint about the anti-political discourse has always been is it ignores the economic realities of the situation. And one of the things that we have to look at in the United States is like the development and to I, – God, it's funny because Tyler Cohen sounds like a Marxist when he talks about this, right? You guys know that economist, right? No, like, who's that? Who's that? No. The American libertarian is like – he's like we're going to have the profit declines because low-hanging fruit is over. There's no easy technological developments to expand commodity production easily. There's no, there's not a whole lot of markets to grow into, you know, and so you're going to see an increase in uh, focus on the state. And I was haunted by this because I was also reading um, Wayne Price. I was reading it for this podcast because he writes, he thinks Marx's theory of the class nature of the state had changed in Brumaire. And I think he's wrong. But one of the things that he says is that uh, in the Grundessa, Marx posits kind of offhand that as capitalists, re- as the, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall reaches a, reaches a high point, capitalists will start relying on the rentier tactics to get profitability back up. And to do that, they will need an ever inc- uh, stronger state because rentiers only work 
when you have police to enforce property values, particularly on abstract things like intellectual property. Right. So that that like threw me for a loop because I was reading that and then reading Tyler Cohen at the same time. And but the important you know, thing, Derek, is like that it redistributes. They can only redistribute profits. They can't generate new profits. Correct. You're, you're right. But that well, but Mark, Marx predicts that that leads to like like severe decline. It leads into it leads into a kind of like it could lead into a like a semi permanent state of decline if the proletariat doesn't seize power. And the proletariat would eventually lose the ability to because their production is less and less important. So that's haunting. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that is like a logical implication of of some of his other ideas. I'm not going to, I shouldn't say that Marx says that, but like that the idea that the rentier state becomes more and more important. Certainly in uh, in international trade, you know, specifically, like I think if you, I think I saw some analysis of how the surplus is controlled for that's generated in in China, and mm-hmm. it's really amazing. Like who controls the shipping, who controls the the legal entities of the, on the IP, and where all the surplus is going. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's fucking phenomenal how little of it China is actually managing to grab. I you know we're going to be living in a time where the Remeyer is going to feel particularly haunting. I think because we're about to be in a real global economic crisis in a way that we've maybe never seen. Because one of the things that that I was reading that terrifies me is they're predicting recession in the developing economies, which have never had them. This is like the business cycle hits everywhere at once. Yeah. Like China will not be able to like Keynesianism its way out of this situation. Right. And thus also the United States won't be able to either. Um, because consumption, everybody's consumption, if you're sitting in your gaff, your consumption has to go down. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and, you, and you also can't use another state to offload your excess production, which is how we've been hand, hiding this for so long. Like China can't offload its excess production to, you know, U.S. toy markets or Amazon anymore. The overproduction problem becomes universal, not just for one country to deal with. It, but a lot of it probably depends, I, you know, it, which sectors get hit, I think, as in what the effect will be. The actual productive economy is not being hit as hard as a service economy. So that'll make a big difference from station yes. nation to nation. Like you look at the, the service economy in, in London here. It's just been absolutely destroyed. But the service economy gets it first. Then that causes reverberations in the housing market. When the housing market fails, you have a, you have massive capital devaluation. With massive capital devaluation, then you have the inability to invest. When you have the inability yeah. to invest, then you have actual commodity production problems. Like it's 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 not a matter of one sector can falter, but one sector faltering everywhere will affect every other sector everywhere in a way that almost ensures crisis. I don't I don't really like. And like- our planners have been have been shockingly bad at predicting how their own system works. So, for example. One of the reasons why everybody was predicting a quick recovery was that in April, you saw the largest increase in American household income ever, from negative 2% to 10% higher. But you know why? Yeah, that $1,200 check. It was, it, was the, it, was the, like, it was like the only downward distribution of wealth in like the last 40 years. Right, but it was also right after the, the biggest upward distribution of wealth ever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I mean, yeah. Like it's, it's like 
a, a an outlier in a trend that is utterly the opposite direction. Right. But that's going to end in July. So they were predicting, I mean, the fucking economic analysis people were being so stupid as to predict the, the spike. That's that the spike in April from, from a temporary government assistance program was somehow going to float the entire economy into an immediate uplift without realizing that the way, they, the way they've timed this, that literally that mortgage, rental, all those protections, the unemployment will all stop way before employment fully returns. And also the eviction protections and all that are going to go flat. And little bit, this is something I was shocked about that I was talking about the CDLs earlier. Like collateralized debt things were re-legalized in the Trump era in a slightly yeah. different way. And so like that thing that brought the economy down in 2007 yeah. is trying to explode in September. But it's even it's worse though because these are mainly the big market is in CLOs which is in corporate right. debt. And the corporate debt tranches are like so, like the ones that are AAA of them are still fucking corporate debt that can't issue their own bonds. So right. it's like that stuff is going to go from probably worth AAA ratings to maybe you know like in in this in this scenario, like these firms could actually go bust. It could go to like ten cents on the dollar. Like certainly the lower end of the those tranches and those things, but even the upper ones might get screwed beyond belief. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and the people are right, by the way, uh, people in the chat are right, that while this is happening, we're not even factoring in the fact that, like, the state level, because unemployment's run state to state, the state level red tape on getting unemployment is still massive in a lot of states. And so like, I think it's like maybe, I've, I've read between a third, only a third or a half, depending on who you read, of the claims have even been honored. So, like, fuck, man, like... And so, yeah, when I read this, I'm just thinking, like, maybe France and, you know, Louis Napoleon. That Normally, I think of those times as, like, some of the worst times to have been a worker. But, like, I don't know. Like, we might be nostalgia for it. We might have nostalgia for them soon. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. The artwork for the show was created by the Korean artist and author of the 2019 Marx Engels illustration book. You can check out links to his work and Twitter account in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. (laughs) 